Well, this evening we come to the last of the Ten Commandments. As we've been making our way through them in Exodus chapter 20, we come to Exodus 20, verse 17, which is the Tenth Commandment. So I turn now to another short reading of Scripture. Though this verse is a little longer than some of them, it's not as short as saying you shall not steal, but it is a one-verse Scripture lesson this evening yet again. Exodus 20, verse 17, this is the word of the Lord as he spoke to Israel at Mount Sinai and as, as he inspired Moses infallibly to record. And so we have the very word of the living God here as we read Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. May we pray. Lord, we do pray as we come before you this evening to hear your word preached as well as it has just been read. We pray that that you would make us attentive to what it is teaching us, that we would apply this commandment both in its prohibition and also in the positive things that it implies, that we would honor you and our neighbor even as we seek not to covet that which is not properly ours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're coming now in this series to the final of the Ten Commandments, uh, just once again I'll mention, I'll begin this evening by mentioning those uses of God's moral law, uh, which the Ten Commandments summarizes the moral law of God. And uh, one is uh, one that I usually name third. The last couple of sermons I've named first is often called the civil use that that use that restrains evil in human society. So uh, having the Ten Commandments known in a society is a a way that restrains evil. This is why it's so important that we not give ground to those who don't want the Ten Commandments publicly displayed, for example. Another, which we often list as the first one, is the the pedagogical use. It's the the use of the law that leads us to Christ. A pedagogue literally is a child leader. Uh, And so it's like children being led to school. Uh, we are led to Christ by the law because it shows us how holy God is on the one hand and how sinful we are on the other. It's, it's, uh, it shows us how desperately we therefore need a Savior. It's the, the use in which the law serves like a mirror to show us what we really look like in God's eyes. And that's really been most of the focus of this series to show us that we are sinners and we desperately need a savior but also we've touched on this other use of the law the didactic use the instructional use uh, which is that use uh, of the law for those who are saved how do you use this law you're saved through faith in jesus christ remember uh, the pedagogical use that use of the law that shows us that we need a savior it's not meant to show us how to save ourselves that would be like trying to use the mirror to shave yourself with the mirror. But no, you, you, you want to look in the mirror and use the razor to, shave, to be shaved. Well, uh, this mirror should drive us to Christ to depend upon Him. Just like the mirror shows me that I need to be cleansed. In this case, only Christ can cleanse me. I can't cleanse myself. And, but once I'm cleansed, there's this other use of the law, this didactic use that 
shows me how to show Christ that I'm thankful. And I can see what pleases God in his moral law, and I can do those things to show that I am Christ's servant. How grateful I am for salvation. Well, this evening, we come to the tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. As the conclusion to the Ten Commandments, commandment number ten really actually touches on all of the others in some way, but especially certain ones. Most obviously it connects to stealing and to adultery by the things that are mentioned in it right there. So commandments six and seven, or six and eight rather. If you covet your neighbor's possessions, that is if you have an inordinate envious desire to possess what actually rightfully belongs to someone else, you know, you might try to steal it. If you covet someone's husband or wife, well, as Jesus teaches, you've already committed adultery in your heart, and it might lead you to committing it outwardly. Certainly, those sins of adultery and of theft start with covetousness. They start with an improper desire for something that doesn't actually belong to us. But more than this, the Tenth Commandment makes clear that a mere outward righteousness, a mere outward adherence to any of these commandments, is not sufficient to be righteous before God, because this one definitely opens the heart, as it were. It, it exposes that sin begins from within us, as we saw Jesus say before. Jesus spoke of those who were only outwardly righteous as being like cups that were just clean on the outside or like whitewashed tombs. We find this in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 28. Jesus says there, in the right chapter, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You stop there, just note, what does he mean when he say, says a hypocrite? Literally, it means an actor, a mask wearer. He's in an ancient theater, actors usually wore masks. Someone who pretends to be something they're not. And he says, why are the Pharisees and scribes hypocrites? Well, he says, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Obviously, he's not talking about the dishes they're eating with. He's talking about themselves. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. And then he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know, a cup that's only clean on the outside, well, it might look clean, but inside, where it actually counts, it's filthy. It could be even deadly. 
And then Jesus speaks of whitewashed tombs, and we've talked about this recently when we were, we were considering the, the feasts of the Lord. We know that on those special feasts when people had to gather at Jerusalem at the central sanctuary for Passover, for Pentecost, for the, the Feast of Tabernacles, part of the preparation for that time was that the tombs would be whitewashed. So everybody knew what this referred to. And this was because, of course, the, the Pharisaical rules that they tended to add to God's law. Uh, that they, didn't, they knew that, that contact with a dead body made someone unclean, ceremonially unclean, so they couldn't participate in the Passover, for example. And so that no one would accidentally do that and worry, had I accidentally done that, what they would do is they would clearly mark every place where dead people were buried so that people wouldn't even come near to touching dead men's bones. Rotting corpses. And so they would whitewash the tombs and whitewash the graves. So all the tombs around Jerusalem would be whitewashed and they would be shining in the sunlight and they would look beautiful. As you were approaching Jerusalem, you would see all of these structures that looked clean and white. All of these stone doors over tombs that were carved out of the hillsides. And they would look clean and white. They would look lovely. And yet inside, what was there? There was a rotting corpse. And Jesus says that the Pharisees, the hypocrites, are like this. They might look outwardly righteous, but inside they're corrupt. So two might be beautiful and spotless, but on the inside is a corpse, something unclean. The Lord told the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord knows what's in our hearts. God wants us to be holy in our thoughts and desires as well as in our outward deeds. He wants both. And when Jesus says that the, in that same diatribe there against the scribes and Pharisees, he says, well, they, they tithe in mint and dill and cumin. Even their, they even tithe the least of their herbs from their gardens. And he says, this was fine. This you should do as well as these other things. Their outward righteousness was good in and of itself, but not if they thought they were earning God's favor by it, and certainly not if they were inwardly unrighteous. God wants us to be holy inwardly first, as well as outwardly. If our hearts are cleansed, then good works proceed from them. The Tenth Commandment addresses what goes on in the hearts and minds of men and women. As a daily reading from Table Talk some years ago said, covetousness can be seen as the one sin that gives birth to all the others. That same article goes on to speak of how Adam and Eve's coveting of knowledge and their illicit desire to take God's prerogatives for themselves led to their eating the forbidden fruit. As I've already mentioned, the adulterer must first covet someone who is not his wife or her husband in order to commit adultery. And before stealing, the thief has to covet or be envious of his neighbor's 
possessions. That same article, I'll just read a little more, here even points this out, and we've kind of mentioned this sort of thing in regard to theft before, but voters grow jealous of what other people in a nation have and use the ballot box to redistribute wealth. Corporations covet the dominant position in the market and game the system to create laws that give them competitive advantages at the expense of other companies. Well, uh, we could go on and on about how some lobbied for these uh, shutdowns during COVID and you keep certain companies open was their shipping shipping uh, items to people, but other mom-and-pop stores, the local stores, had to be closed down. That gave an, a competitive advantage to certain companies over others. The article goes on, people want to look good in the sight of others and covet the earned reputation of respected people so they besmirch character and lie about their own accomplishments. So we covet praise of others. And so we bring down those who have earned, we might, we might uh, gossip and malign others. So we're violating the ninth commandment and puff up our own accomplishments before others. It says, the list of ways in which covetousness leads to other sins is endless. In Colossians 3.5, Paul says, covetousness is idolatry. If we examine the testimony of Scripture concerning the ways in which we tend to violate the Tenth Commandment, we can summarize them with a few general statements. One of them, of course, is being discontented with our own economic state or social status. Right? The, the sense that God or the world owes us something more than we have actually earned, or a better life than the one that we have, fewer hardships than we have, that's in a sense covetousness. It's what you might call the entitlement mentality. That's a form of covetousness. Or we believe that others owe us something simply because of our existence. Right? Secondly, any kind of envy of what someone else has. You know, the thought that if someone has something, so should I. Now that's not to speak of, of noticing that somebody has a, an item that would be useful and helpful for my work, for my ministry, for my service to God, or something of the kind. That's... Uh, and then going and getting, earning that myself, that, that's a different kind of thing. That's not covetousness. That's just uh, getting an idea. This is how we, how we see what tools could be useful to us is we see someone else using those tools, right? Or we think sometimes, ah, if that tool were modified, it would be useful for this other thing. And so then we might build a new tool. But when we envy something, when we think, well, somebody else has that, why shouldn't I have it? We cross into envy. That's a type of covetousness. A third way that we can covet is that we can grieve at the good or the success or the general well-being someone else has that we might feel that we lack. Sort of the flip side of the coin of envy or is another aspect of envy. It's, it's the thought that, you know, if I don't have that thing, no one else should have it. It's the kind of thinking that leads us to declare that someone else has too much wealth. Well, who, who gets to decide how much wealth somebody should have? You know, for his day, Abraham was extremely wealthy, and he was the friend of God. 
Job also was arguably one of the wealthiest men in the world in his day, and he was pointed out by God as being a notable, notably righteous man. And Satan said, no, no, he's only righteous because you've given him all that stuff. And God said, well, you can take it away. Take everything away except his life. You can take away his family. You can take away his, his uh, goods. You can take away his health. And then we'll see if he's still righteous toward me. And Job was still righteous toward God. His wealth didn't make him righteous or make him unrighteous. And he certainly didn't have, quote-unquote, too much. There If a man has gained his wealth by legitimate means, if he hasn't stolen it, if he hasn't gotten it through drug dealing or extortion or bootlegging or prostitution or whatever, uh, it's really none of my business, no one else's business, how much he has or what he chooses to do with it as long as he's not using it to sin. I've heard many people, many person in my life say that they'll hear about a company enticing someone they want the best CEO they can get and uh, so they in order to entice the this person that they think is super qualified for the job they'll offer him more money than the next company would offer him and then the next company offer ups their offer right and then so they increase their offer and also give him a golden parachute right so if it doesn't work out if we have to to get rid of you or you need to leave for some reason well we'll give you a, a severance package of millions of dollars so that you'll be taken care of. Now I'll hear people say, well, that's just obscene. I know I'm being somebody who's not a big sports fan. I'm tempted to look at, at what people are paid to play a game for their, their adult life and think, well, that's just terrible that somebody would make that much money doing nothing that's particularly productive for society. But frankly, if the economy will support it, if people are, are willing to pay for it, it's none of my business. And oftentimes when I hear people say, well, that that CEO getting that much money for doing that job, that's just obscene. I'll ask them, so if your son was graduating from college right now and he was offered a job like that, he has two job offers and one of them's uh, going to give him this golden parachute of millions of dollars and and a much bigger salary package than the other, would you tell him, don't take that job, that's obscene? I think 90% of them or more would say, Good for you, son. Take that job. Just because I don't own a house, you know, I've, I've, my, most of my adult life been a pastor. And I've lived in a manse or a parsonage. Well, just because I don't own a house doesn't mean someone else shouldn't own a house. If he can afford it. So that's one way that we can and a third way that we can uh, uh, practice covetousness is when we grieve at the good of others. How dare they have something that we don't have? A fourth way is any inordinate affection for the spouse or the property of another. Inordinate is really the, the key word there. Certainly can have respect for what other people have and again say, well, well the qualities that that person's house has or looks like something that would be helpful in my life and so I would get it if I could afford it. Of course if I I care for another man's wife as a sister in Christ as a good friend that's perfectly fine. If I desire her to be my wife and not his or to have an affair with her that's covetousness. 
If I see someone's you know, electronic device, and I think, that would be useful in my life, well, that's not covetousness. If I wish that particular device was mine, and I wish he didn't have it, but I had it, well, that would be covetousness. Even if I yearn for one just like it, without begrudging my neighbors having one, I can still cross the line into covetousness if I let my desire for it become an obsession. If it becomes a driving force in my life to have that thing. That's a form of covetousness as well. That's the most obviously idolatrous form of covetousness when it becomes such a driving force in my life that it becomes more important to me than other things that ought to be important. Which brings us to the point that Paul makes in Colossians 3.5. Covetousness is actually idolatry. We begin to worship what we desire. And that brings us full circle from the 10th commandment back to the 1st. We can violate the first commandment by violating the tenth commandment, or violation of the first commandment can begin by violation or with violation of the tenth commandment. That's why Jesus was so adamant that we guard our hearts against covetousness. In Luke 12, Jesus says this in verses 15 through 21. Oops, turned to the wrong one here. Luke 12, verses 15 through 21, says, And Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And then he goes on, as Luke says, Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. There I will store all my crops and my goods. That sounds somewhat prudent, except that he's doing it in the wrong order. He's pulling down the barns before he's got the... So where's he going to store his stuff in the meantime? Confident that he knows the future here, so to speak. And I will say to my soul, soul... There's Jesus using a sense of humor there. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. And we think only of earthly wealth, only of laying up treasures for ourselves then we also have an inordinate and idolatrous view of the things that we have on earth. When we covet in any way, any of these ways that are just mentioned here, we really are usurping God's place in our lives. We're making things that we desire into our gods. Or to put it another way, we put ourselves in the place of God and make our desires for our own sense of well-being more important than God's desires for us, for us as he reveals in scripture well if we examine our hearts which of us has kept the 10th commandment <laughs> have you perfectly guarded your hearts against all inordinate desires have you never envied the possessions or the wife or the husband of someone else 
Have you never wished someone else didn't have what they had legitimately earned because you don't have it as well? In this series, we've now established that each one of us is a false-worshipping, idolatrous, blaspheming, Sabbath-breaking, parent-dishonoring, murderous, adulterous, thieving, lying, greedy sinner. We've rebelled against our Creator. If, If any of us try to stand before the Holy God based on our own merits, we are lost. There is no possibility that you or I can stand before God and say, I am righteous when this is God's standard of righteousness. We deserve His wrath and His judgment. But I don't say this to you to discourage you. As the Apostle Paul says, even when we were enemies and sinners, God loved us and sent us a Savior. He plainly says that in Romans 5, verses 8 through 11, where he teaches But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice Christ didn't wait, which he would have waited forever, but he didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up and to be worthy of him dying for us. He died for us when we were still sinners. And so Paul says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So if we are trusting in him and we're justified, by God's grace alone, working through faith alone and Christ alone, we'll certainly be saved from the wrath that our sins deserve. Jesus has paid the penalty of that. Paul goes on and says, For if we were enemies, so we were sinners, we were enemies. So he says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So we were enemies, and God did what it took to reconcile us to himself. And if he did that, then of course he will save us from any wrath to come, and we can have joy even now in this fallen world. The Apostle says we were enemies and sinners. God loved us even at that time and sent us a Savior. Jesus Christ, the sinless God-man, took your place as a substitute to endure the punishment due for your sins. When you trust in Him, you are forgiven of all the unrighteousness that has been exposed in this series of sermons about the Ten Commandments. Your response, of course, should be a grateful desire to do whatever pleases Him and use these commandments to do the things that please God, that honor Him. And you can do that because if you are redeemed in Christ, you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. In regard to the Tenth Commandment, that means, number one, learn to be content with your condition in life. This is not the absence of of all desire and attachment like Buddhism teaches people should have, but this is the Holy Spirit-empowered sense of contentment with what you and I have and a trust that God will carry you through whatever circumstances you're in. In 1 Timothy 6.8, Paul says, we should be content as long as we have food and clothing. Number two, Be charitable, not only financially, but in your state of mind and emotions toward other people. 
Don't be envious, but be happy for others who have succeeded financially and materially. And then third, be willing to help further the good of your neighbor rather than begrudging them the things that they have, even if you don't have them. Obey the Tenth Commandment in thanksgiving to God for what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your great salvation you've revealed in Christ. Empower us by the Holy Spirit, we pray, to lead holy and upright lives. Teach us to put away all covetousness, to have righteous desires and affections, especially to have those desires and affections that glorify Christ in our thoughts and our words and our deeds, even as we pray in his name. Amen.